Welcome to the Wide Teams Podcast, the podcast for geographically dispersed teams and remote workers. Located on the web at wideteams.com and on Twitter at wideteams. This is episode 42, so this will be the episode that answers all your questions about life, the universe, and everything. I am your host, Avdi Grimm, and I am super excited about my guest today. The uh, He's the author of The Passionate Programmer and Rails Recipes, which are both great books, uh, he's, uh, for a long time, the organizer of the, uh, RubyConf and RailsConf conferences, and he's SVP of technology at Living Social, uh, Chad Fowler. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. We have been planning this for almost three years, so it should be really good. Yes. Yeah. I assume that you have been making notes about what to talk about for three years, as have I. Oh, of course. I've been carefully tracking your career, and, and, uh, I've, uh the list is, is several pages long at this point. Excellent. So you have you have some experience with with various kinds of of remote work, yes? Yeah, I probably have let's say three different distinct types of remote work experience that I could talk about. Um the first thing is earlier in my career I spent a lot of time working with traditional and then slightly less than traditional offshore uh team setups, so like uh uh, headquarters in Kentucky and offshore development in India. Um, and in fact, one team that was spread between Seattle, Minneapolis, Con- Louisville, Kentucky, and Bangalore. Oh, wow. Um, then I moved to India and I helped set up a software center um, in Bangalore that was a an offshore insourcing arrangement. So it was an offshore team, but it was people who would work more durably on the same thing and actually have some ownership over what they were doing. But hmm. they, they were, you know, the developers were all in India with the business people, quote unquote, in, uh, in Kentucky. Okay. Then I've worked in consulting arrangements where I'm either the lone or lead developer on a project with a team, uh, while sitting in my basement. And then finally, so that was several years that I did that. And then finally, uh, now in my new job at Living Social, new as in slightly over a year, I have a widely distributed team of people who all work for the same company. Um, but uh, it's not kind of this separated uh, remote team thing. It's teams that are distributed, in some cases fully distributed, nobody mm. in the same place. Okay. Um, so I feel like a lot of the meat that, that we could really talk about is, is in the, your work with Living Social, but I do want to cover some of those, like, previous iterations a little bit. Um, what was the, what was the, the outsourcing and the insourcing experience like? I mean, um, did you feel like that was something that was, was working well or, um, you know, were there a lot of issues with it? At first it was horrible. Uh, it was, I, in fact, I think probably a lot of what made me as opinionated as I am now about software development came from that experience. Um, so we started with the traditional thing where we had a team with no real technical expertise except for kind of a technical project manager on site. Uh, 
and then we would fully ship things off to India to be developed without without any in-person interaction. Uh, and we would go sometimes long cycles of time without really seeing any code delivered, and then it would come back just wretched and wrong. <laughs> uh, and basically, every project had a, a crisis mode at the end. You know, when you tried to iterate, or sorry, when you tried to, um, uh, what is the the word? Like Big Bang integration. Integrate, not iterate. Yeah, sorry. Sometimes I lose very typical, obvious words. <laughs> so yeah, Big Bang inter- integrations at the end never worked. Um, and so it was really that experience that that developed in me the the will to fight against terrible software practices because I saw them destroying people's day to day lives and delivering things of low value. Um, so the company I worked for at the time, I was desperate to change, you know, everything I could about that situation, and uh, it pushed me into extreme programming early on because I saw, you know, all the benefits of that could be applied, uh, other than the the in-person on-site customer thing. Uh, every other part of extreme programming would have improved the situation that we had, mm-hmm. uh, and very explicitly improved it for a remote team. Because you need faster cycles with a distributed team. Um, right. But I ended up actually going to India because there there was a an opportunity for us to open our own software development center as opposed to offshoring. So one of the big problems, if not the biggest problem with offshoring, is turnover. Like You don't have any kind of uh, durability of knowledge, um, even for the duration of a single project, much less multiple projects. So... We decided to do a thing where we hired full-time employees that actually worked for our company, built up a center filled with people that we interviewed and hired. Mm-hmm. Um, I took that as an opportunity to go create the culture that I wanted to have in software development in that company, literally from zero, uh, from interviewing the first people and, mm-hmm. and selecting everyone that, that joined through... Uh, pounding code reviews into people's heads and making that part of the rhythm of everyday life there. Hmm. Uh, and eventually realizing that when you're when you are yourself offshore so to speak, it's the people in headquarters that are stupid and making all sorts of mistakes. <laughs> so, uh I think that's kind of an important takeaway for all distributed work scenarios in fact. It's it's those idiots on the other end of the line. Exactly. Yeah. So like I mean was that was that your biggest uh takeaway your biggest lesson learned from the 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 outsourcing and then insourcing experience Yeah I mean there there were I guess a bunch of them but uh probably the biggest one was um the fact that nothing exists unless it's running and usable by the person who's requested it So for example uh whether I'm an offshore developer sitting in India or I'm Chad Fowler sitting in his basement in Boulder, Colorado, if I say that a feature is done, it's not done. Uh, the only way to actually check it off is for the customer, whoever that happens to be contextually, to use it uh, in some sort of production mode where where that person is actually controlling it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and did the did the distribution kind of increase the the number of of like uh, units of separation between 
the person working on it and the person confirming that it's actually done? Uh, what do you mean by degrees of separation? Well, like, I mean, does it, did you, did you find that it was, there was more, I don't know, red tape or just, just more steps in between the person working on it and the person who can actually confirm that it's, it's done? Not necessarily. Uh, It's not really about degrees of separation as much as it is, um, you know, if you're not sitting with someone, actually, it's it's even true if you're in the same building, if you're not interacting in person. Mm-hmm. You know, it, if someone tells you something is finished, if you don't actually see it, it's not going to be true. You know, that that's sort of the lesson that I learned from the Big Bang integration problem. Mm-hmm. A team can be reporting a successful status and cranking through stories and some sort of tracker all they want, but whatever they're creating, unless it's being constantly evolved and course corrected by the actual person who wants it, mm-hmm. whatever they're creating is almost definitely wrong. Mm. And when you're, when you're physically separate, it's less likely that you're going to have kind of ambient course correction by someone walking by someone's desk and looking at what they're doing and saying, Oh, that's cool. Except did you think about this and that? So, uh, you kind of have to build the explicit steps into a process that uh, require uh, an end user or customer or domain expert or whatever to actually look at, validate, and and brainstorm with the developer. Sure. Okay. That's probably the number one takeaway from that experience. So then you, you moved on to working with some distributed teams uh, from from like your basement, right? Yeah, exactly. So I was either the only developer on a pro- project or usually lead developer sometimes with uh, with a small team of uh, – so I was working as a consultant, so it might have been a small team of client developers you know, working with me on a new project. Mm-hmm. Um, in those cases, sometimes I would never actually even meet the people in person that I was working with. In some cases, I would go and – and you know, spend a day with them once every several weeks at most, mm. uh, usually just once at the beginning. So that was clearly a very different experience. I, I guess I was the offshore developer in that case. Mm-hmm. Or the very, very inshore, if, if you're in Boulder. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Although in terms of the problems introduced, I would say they're exactly the same as if I had been in India or wherever. Right. And in fact, some cases, you know, I say my basement, but that was really my home base. I was all over the world. I think I was traveling 75% of the time. So mm-hmm. I could have been in Japan or South America. Uh, and sometimes I was when I was working on these things or, or sitting on a train going through Europe. Um, it didn't actually make it any harder, I don't think. Mm. Depend, you know, the actual location didn't. So. Okay. You were able to get connected everywhere and, and just pick up where you were where you left off. Yeah, pretty much. That's one of the joys of independent consulting. Right. I mean, was so was the whole experience pretty much a positive thing, or or were there some real downers about that? The only downer, I guess, is the the psychological aspect of being a developer who is isolated from other developers. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's not really about making it work tactically, I guess. But I spent many years never, never really working with another person, mm-hmm. um, especially when I was at home. But even when I was out on the road, you know, I'm going to conferences. 
I'm never actually working with the people at the conferences. I'm just, right. you know, sitting by myself, usually in a hotel room, coding or on conference calls. You don't, you don't connect with people the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm pretty sure my, I would have been a better developer had I not spent, you know, six, seven years in that kind of isolation. Hmm. Because the times that I spend, you know, literally sitting next to someone pair programming are the times that I always have uh, kind of epiphanies about mm. the, the the friction of working with another person and seeing how they do things that that are different than the way I do things causes you to reevaluate and sometimes adjust. And I don't I don't make that kind of change when I'm sitting by myself because I can kind of run the show. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, so um, so from there we move to to Living Social. Yes, and maybe just I, if you could just start out by describing like some of the different um, setups that you have, because I'm, I'm imagining that it's not all sort of like one homogenous way that everybody works. Um, yeah, that's a, a very good point. So um, when I came to Living Social. And they they acquired the consulting company I was working for at the time. It was called InfoEther, and um, we slightly more than doubled the team. It went from ten to twenty something uh, when that happened. And before we came in, basically every developer was local, and it was it was one team because you can't really separate ten people into multiple teams very well. Mm. And some of those were even ops people. So it was really less as full-time developers. So it's one team. They're all sitting next to each other. They just work comes in and they do it. Um, and sometimes they're the ones figuring out what they're going to work on. Uh, I wanted to be sure since we had a distributed team at InfoEther and I had a bunch of people all over the place that I was hoping to hire and many of whom I did hire later, I wanted to make sure that we had a culture that was open to distributed teams. So immediately we had to change things to some extent. Um, you know, the the local team for the first time had to start considering that a meeting has to have a place with a, a way to Skype or talk on the phone and some way to share screens, that sort of stuff. Um, over time, we have grown to much larger than the original 10 people. And as we've done it, there have been a couple of challenges that I have been trying to, to figure out how to deal with. The, the first one being large teams and large companies typically suck for various reasons to work in. Um, they become like there's just overhead ends up kind of creeping in and Whenever you have multiple personalities involved in something, you know, there's politics and mm. bureaucracy and all that sort of stuff. So I started thinking about how can you make a large team still feel like a small one? And, and what are the different attributes of small teams that, that people appreciate? Mm. And I kind of boiled it down to, one, you actually want less people to have to check with when you want to get something done. Um on a large team, you start thinking about stuff like standardizing processes and tools and technologies. On small teams, you don't have to think about that because there are so few of you, you can just make choices on the fly. So uh, to shorten this otherwise long story, what we decided to do was create a collection of small teams. Um, and 
we like to use the phrase startup within a startup to describe what we're what we're doing with it. And that's kind of a blended hope and reality of the situation in that um, we want it to feel that way. And aspirationally, that's how we want each team to to behave, that they are um, autonomous and they can make choices, obviously, within reason. And they're held to business goals, but not so much held to, you know, show us your pivotal tracker stories and your velocity. Mm-hmm. So what's happened then is teams have kind of formed in organic evolutionary ways. Um, sometimes it's a fully local team where there's even a product manager, designer, and all the developers are co-located. Sometimes it's that but one person remotely who's adding to the, the project. And then there are other teams where not one person is sitting in the same location almost ever. Mm-hmm. So every team operates differently. Every team potentially makes different technology choices, definitely different process choices. Um, in some cases, they use different tools to manage the projects and the, you know, the agile processes if they're following such a process. Mm-hmm. So we have a completely mixed bag. Um, we are distributed all over the world, uh, and not literally all over the world, but on several continents and then even within the U.S., I counted recently at something like 20 different cities that we're in. Hmm. And that's that's cities with offices or cities with people? Combination. So okay. we have, let's see, I will guess six offices that have developers mm-hmm. from four to 50-ish in, in the office. And the major major ones in terms of size are in D.C., Boulder, and Portland right now. Okay. So, I mean, are you seeing some interesting choices um, made, you know, sort of filtering back to you uh, as these teams figure out some of the, the teams with remote people or that are completely distributed? Are you seeing interesting choices that, that they're making as far as technology or as far as process? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. So in some cases, one of the things that happens is it just doesn't work. Um And I don't mean that distributed development doesn't work, but I mean like on a specific project or in a specific team with the personalities involved, you have the couple of people who are not co-located and it kind of just naturally sorts itself out that they move on to something else because they can't gel. So um, that's not really an interesting choice except for the fact that if it doesn't work, you know, making the choice – to keep everyone local, like sometimes you just do that. Mm-hmm. And we have the luxury of having a large enough team that we can do that without it being a problem. So it's not like we let someone go. It, it's just that someone moves to a different project where it works better. Mm-hmm. Th- there are just some projects where it makes more sense for everyone to be together. Mm-hmm. In the same uh, and obviously some personalities that never can adapt to having someone on the phone. Um, one of the things that that one team did is with with one remote person is to basically just dial them on Skype or a conference phone or maybe a conference phone that's actually hooked to Skype and just stay connected all day. Mm, okay. Um, and that's something I've actually done going back over ten years with remote team members. Um, the ability to just like turn around and say, hey, so-and-so and have them respond is 
surprisingly important to like team gelling and team dynamics. Um, and you see it locally when you work in an office with other other people that just being able to turn your chair around and interrupt them, as annoying as that might be, uh, it's an important part of daily interaction. It's an important part of like how ideas evolve. And I think people evolving ideas together is one of the most important ways that people bond in the workplace. Mm-hmm. So if there isn't some mechanism for collaborating in a kind of brainstormy, uh, non-goal-driven way, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. uh, it becomes really harder to develop a work bond with someone. Um, so, you know, if you think back to like the people you've worked with in the past that you've passionately would want to work with again, you know, you, you'll hear people talk about use phrases like gone to battle with or been in the trenches with and that sort of thing. I think a lot of it comes from, I mean, some of it comes from, uh, traumatic work situations that they work through together, like horrible outages, but sometimes, I think a lot of that is built on just the camaraderie of having given birth to an idea together. And you don't do that by setting up a conference call um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, that has an end time and and a desired end result. You you do it just by like constantly interacting casually. Mm -hmm. Um, Other things that people have done that are creative uh, or not, not necessarily creative, but just choices people have made. Um, there is, there's one group that, so basically the engineering team at Living Social is broken into four major divisions and they're, they're divided among the, the major areas of our business. Uh, and one of the teams that is working on our merchant solutions business they are very distributed. They are, they are maybe not the most distributed, but one of the two most distribu- distributed teams. But they also have a heavy contingent at headquarters. So what the director of that team has done, rather than form really any unit, uh, that's co-located, is he's chosen to form every team so that it's completely dispersed which means there's some contact for each of those teams into headquarters, which is where all of the quote-unquote business people are. Hmm. And I say quote-unquote because everybody's a business person, obviously. Um, but, you know, the ones that are that are not developers mm-hmm. are requesting things or out talking to merchants and you know, developing the, the business plans for what we're creating, there's always someone that's here and able to talk to them directly. Um, but for the most part, there are no two people on the same thing here in the office. Hmm. So you could have three, three people in three offices and the offices might be next to each other, but they're each on three different teams. Yes, exactly. And, and we don't actually have offices here, so they're all sitting next to each other, uh, at desks. And if you walk around, everyone's wearing headsets and there are Google Hangouts with several people on Hmm. screens. So fun to just walk around and wave at people and the cameras desk by desk. Right. That's very cool. Do you have like a way that, uh, I mean, do these, some of these, uh, practices, if, if, you know, a team finds it works really well, that these things just sort of spread by osmosis or do you like, you know, talk to each other about, you know, things that work, things that didn't work? Not really. I, I guess 
they spread by osmosis. And you know, one thing I was thinking about, like going into this discussion, what would I say uh, if someone asked me if distributed teams work? Mm-hmm. And my response would be, it can work really well, but you have to very explicitly work on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I yeah. think we have grown quickly enough that we haven't done enough explicit work on it yet. And we're, we're just now kind of starting. that. Right. Well, if you could like start to form the outline for, you know, what would you, what would your, what would your, you know, points of advice be, or, you know, your, your things that you absolutely must do this. Um, cause you've had so many different inputs on, on this over the years. I'm curious, you know, as you're forming that in your head, what, what it sounds like. Yeah, the first thing I guess is to recognize that a distributed team setup is uh, a fundamental cultural change that you have to make, um, even if you have not previously had a team. So, uh, you know, if, uh, if you have a bunch of people coming from organizations where they were all in one room, um, or if you have an existing team and you're starting to add distributed workers to it, uh, well, that sounds like a programming problem, doesn't it? Um, like you, <laughs> you have to start getting into your head that like every brainstorming session and every hallway conversation is intentionally or is, is potentially excluding someone that should be part of it. Hmm. Um, that whenever you share information, there needs to be you need to be thinking about AV and time zones and that kind of stuff is really hard. Mm-hmm. The, the lazy choice and the obvious choice, not for someone who's, who means any uh, harm is just to choose whatever is convenient for all the people that are local. And then as an afterthought, add remote people to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the next thing is that technology is very important. So, like conference calls suck. They really suck. Uh, they suck to be on the call end, especially if there's a room full of people, because it's it's almost impossible to inject yourself into a conversation. So if you're if you're ever in a situation where where you have a kind of uh, a core location and then people who are distributed beyond that core location, like we have, uh, you need to and in all discussions, very explicitly allow time and ask for the the people on the remote end of the conversation to talk. Um, or else it's just like I've found myself on conference calls pressing buttons on the phone so people will know that I'm trying to talk. You know, so <laughs> will cut through the sound. Um, we've we've even done things where we have uh, a designated person who's sitting on chat. Uh, in the room for anyone who is remote so that if they're trying to talk, they can just IM somebody and, and then they'll interrupt the room on their behalf or ask a question on their behalf. That's brilliant. And that one is very important. Um, the other thing I'd say though is if it's tenable, just do everything where at least for the, the really important conversations that need to be conversations don't have a room ever with multiple people in it. So like, you know, uh, like a physical room with multiple people in it, have everyone be at their own desk at home or whatever. 
you know, using the same mechanism to talk that the people who aren't normally co-located would use. So level the playing field. Yeah, exactly. And it also helps with the audio quality. Like, you know, being in a room, an echoey conference room, trying to talk on a conference phone is terrible. It is. Um, and I find myself annoying people by saying, like, stop tapping on the table and talk into the phone. You know, it's worth even making people get up and walk to whatever the microphone happens to be in a conference setup. Um, even if it's weird and annoying, uh, it will raise everyone's awareness that not everyone's in the same room. Right. Yeah, I guess we're kind of fighting evolution when when we uh, try to convince ourselves that uh, that the you know the people on the other end of the line are uh, are real pe- as as real as the people in the room with us. It's there's there's a lot of instinct that goes into into kind of prioritizing the people around us. Yeah, that's an interesting way to say it: evolution and instinct. I yeah I don't know where that came from. It's just well, <laughs> I cite your evidence, but it sounds sounds right to me. Um, but I can also say that um, being on the other end of that is probably the same kind of visceral reaction. So I would imagine you could take anyone and say spend six months working in an environment where you have one remote person on your team. You will mistreat them in certain ways, or you'll forget, or you'll be inconsiderate. Yeah. Especially if they're in another time zone. Now, and particularly in our situation, where for the people in the U.S., we are in the earliest time zone on the East Coast, and we have people on uh, Pacific. We don't have anyone in Hawaii. Thank, thankfully for them, um, it's really easy to forget and you know do a nine o'clock meeting to brainstorm some new feature and and then you have people either upset that you you did that uh and not and they don't make it or people who just go ahead and get up get on the phone at six o'clock in the morning which is heinous right um the other thing uh, i would encourage is to work from home you know if you have an office environment that has remote team members work from home regularly maybe like uh, force people to not come into the office sometimes again, to level the playing field. Um, And sometimes you could do it where everyone on the team is at home, but even better have, have individuals from the office work from home and have to participate in the same ways that the truly distributed people do. It will uh, spread the burden. Right. Um, Last thing there, which is kind of related is, uh, after I went to India and I saw what it was like to be in India and try and do business with people in the U.S., I recommended and we implemented people coming over regularly, you know, like influencers from the U.S. office, just so they could see how terrible it is to be in India trying to trying to interact with the people from the United States. Hmm. It was bad in so many ways, you know, and probably a lot of ways. Can you that, give like an example of that? Yeah, like the people in India can't understand what the people in the U.S. are saying on the phone. Mm-hmm. So they can't understand it because they're sitting in a room with a bunch of people like I talked about. Mm-hmm. Or they have thick southern accents. Um, like I was actually called into a room more than once to translate between Kentucky and Bangalore. <laughs> English, And I would just listen to the person from Kentucky 
and then say again what they said. And then the person from India would speak and I would say what they said. Hmm. I would literally just repeat what they said so the other side could understand it. So, so the other, you know, you would also see like people, uh, making requests of us in India that we just couldn't understand. But then by the time we would get them, those people would be asleep or off work. So you have to wait a day to get verification. Right. Which, which basically means that being over there was exactly, gave, gave me exactly the same feeling I had being in the U.S. trying to get people in India to get things done. Mm-hmm. Because we were all kind of insensitive to the person on the other side of the, the phone or Skype call or email. Mm-hmm. You always assume that you're communicating clearly. But when you're geographically distributed, it, it kind of changes the requirements. Right. I guess the one thing that I didn't, um, we didn't really address in talking about, uh, the various setups of living social is, uh, you know, why do this at all? Why, um, why let people work from home? Uh, I guess there are a couple of reasons for, from my perspective. Um, one is the obvious that there are specific people you want. Uh, if you limit yourself to the places that you have offices, especially if it's just like, you know, one office in one place, I don't want to be limited to just software developers in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. I don't want to have to move people to D.C. for no reason. Uh, although I love D.C. I moved here from Boulder and I'm 100% happier in D.C. than I was in Boulder. Absolutely love it. But not everyone wants to do that. Uh, so... Like for me, I had a list of names, and I haven't finished checking them off. But um, I had a list of names of people that I would love to work with, and I knew that a large percentage of them would not consider moving. The other one, though, is, and it's probably less obvious, when I worked from my basement in Boulder, as I mentioned, I didn't really work in my basement, but no one cared. So the the lifestyle of working from home is something very appealing and I think for a lot of people, very healthy. Uh, like a lot of people know that in the last several years, I went from being quite severely obese to not severely obese. I won't say much better than that, but I lost a whole bunch of weight. And people ask me, how did you do that when you had to do all this travel and everything else? And uh, I think the secret for me, you know, among obviously many others, but one of the big secrets was I had such flexibility because I didn't have to go to an office every day. Mm. So, you know, that people don't understand how much that restricts them schedule wise, uh, until they get a chance to, to not do it. So for me, I could, I trained for a couple of half marathons and, you know, I'm in Boulder where the weather can get really cold so I could go at the warmest part of the day and go running, and it would be comfortable. Um, or just, frankly, whenever I felt like it, I could take a nap if I didn't sleep well. And I think that led to a happier, more productive me. Hmm. Um, I've also seen that, and it's kind of a, it could go either way. Some people are extremely productive at home. And frankly, will work a whole lot. Now that needs to be tempered anyway, but, you know, like I would, I would work from the moment I woke up 
till let's say 11 a.m. Then I might take an extra long lunch and then work until a normal quitting time and then go eat dinner and then goof around by continuing to work until I went to bed. And it's because I had that more relaxed life cycle or lifestyle that I would probably give more hours to the job than I otherwise would have. Mm-hmm. So that's why, I guess. There are probably more reasons, but mm-hmm. you know, that's probably enough to start with. Yeah, yeah. Um, why are you so interested in this topic that you have asked about it? Uh, why, why am I so interested in the topic of, of distributed teams in general? Or Yeah. yeah. Um, well, you know, for me, uh, I am definitely in that category of people that, that really, really uh, values the flexibility of you know, of, of working from home and of choosing my hours and, and of, uh, you know, of, of choosing where I live based on where my family wants to live rather than based on where a job happens to be. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and so I, I became interested. I figured, you know, if I want to be able to do that, I ought to know, I ought to know how to do it well. And so I thought I'd start asking people how they do it. Yeah. And at the same time, you can also advocate for it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Which, you know, I am, I am an advocate. I mean, I, I mostly try to just, you know, collect information so that I think, I think that one of the strongest forms of advocacy is, is really just to spread the word that something is possible and that it can, it can work and work well. Right. So sometimes, sometimes it doesn't work at all though, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, go ahead. Worked with people that just can't do it. They can't work from home, for example, or they can't work unless they're in an office. Um, I don't know how much I've personally have worked with people like that. Um, you know, I've definitely heard a lot of stories. You know, doing these interviews, I've I've heard I've talked with some people that had mixed experiences. I've even deliberately had some people on that just had really really bad experiences. And um, you know, and and I think you know there there seems to be generally a consensus consensus that. Uh, like you said, there are some people whose personalities are just never going to be okay with that. Um, I think some people sell themselves a little bit short, um, just because, you know, they haven't, um, they haven't done it before and they can't imagine what it would be like. Um, but it's, I think it's true that there are some people that just really need that, that surrounding of, of other people that are also working on stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I've actually seen it completely fail. Um, I have seen otherwise very intelligent people completely flake out and fail to deliver anything. Mm-hmm. You just, it's hard for people to stay focused unless they're surrounded by others that, you know, keep yeah. going. I, I think, you know, um, maybe wandering off point a tiny bit, but, but I feel like it's a real, like, it's kind of a, a real bellwether for, for how interested people are in the project. You know, and how enthused they are about the project. I think it's a lot easier to flake out if you're losing interest in the project. If you know, if if you're just not as not inspired by it anymore, you know, assuming you ever were, um, it's a lot easier to fl- start flaking out on it uh, if you're in your basement than uh, than if you're at the at the office. And you know, and I say that, and I immediately think, well, on the other hand, I can think of some hours long. Uh, conversations about nothing that I had in the hallways of, of, you know, the big industrial complex that I used to work in, uh, or, you know, military industrial complex job, um, yeah, we're you know, frittering away time, avoiding work. 
Um, so now, <laughs> now I'm not even, even sure if I believe that, but, uh, I think it, it might be possible for some, some people that, you know, maybe, maybe the people around them could have kept them interested just because they're, it's, you know, there were cool people to be around. Um, but, but as, as it was, you know, the, the project being uninterested and them not being hooked into a, uh, you know, a fun dynamic office either, uh, they just, you know, it really showed the, the disinterest in the work very early. Yeah. Yeah, I think it probably just becomes more apparent in that case if you're yeah. if you're remote. If you're not, then you can just kind of show up and coast, and it's it'll take longer for people to notice potentially. Right. If you're if you're remote and not delivering, then there's really nothing that you're apparently doing. Right. Because when you're remote, you have to make presence takes an effort. Yes. I mean, you can make your presence felt, but it, but you have to do it deliberately. It's not something you can just sort of sort of uh, lounge around. Uh, you know the uh, the water cooler and and your presence is felt. Yeah, and the passion thing that that you mentioned, you know, passion or interest in the project, that is a big reason that we talk about at Living Social the idea of a startup within a startup kind of model. Mm-hmm. And I think passion is driven by the ability to actually make an impact on something and to have creative input. And if you're just being assigned tasks. You know, from some sort of project tracker, it's really hard to stay passionate about it. At least it's hard to stay passionate about the project as a whole. Maybe you can stay passionate about the technical craft of what you're doing. But frankly, that's not what we're as into here. Um, you know, we're, we're not about having a bunch of crafts people that spend all their time polishing their tools. We're about actually building products that people right. love and care about. So, We've attempted to do it to address that that passion problem that would also apply to remote people by allowing people to actually make choices and feel engaged with the business outcome of what they're doing. Um, but really, everything everything we've been talking about, other than the logistical stuff of conference calls and stuff, is uh, it's like I said earlier when I started learning about. Agile techniques and software design, TDD, and everything else early on, it was driven by bad experiences with distributed teams, but the solutions to these problems are the same solutions you have for a team that's local. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you a question, which um, it's it's a question that I get asked uh, pretty frequently, and I think you're probably the perfect person to answer it if, if ever there was one, because uh, not only do you have a lot of experience with putting together distributed teams, you've also written a whole book about uh, about building your career as a programmer. Uh, so I get asked pretty frequently, um, you know, someone will say, look, I, I feel like I'm one of those people that really wants to work, uh, you know, work from wherever I, I am. You know, whether that's traveling the world or, or in, in, in their basement, uh, with their family or whatever. Um, but, uh, but you know, I don't, I'm not super well known. I don't have an absurd number of Twitter, Twitter followers like, like Chad Fowler. Um, you know, how the question, the question they ask is, is how do I, how do I find that remote job? How do I, you know, especially if not at a tech hub, uh, where I can, you know, maybe go to a, you know, go to my local tech meetups and and meet people uh how do i get hooked up you know make myself known and get hooked up with the company that's willing to to hire remotely yeah that's a hard one uh and you know i guess i can only speak from my own experience but the path that i've followed is probably not typical uh or at least not something you can prescribe to everyone but i guess it's like you said earlier you have to 
to explicitly try to be present when you're remote. Uh, and that, that applies to a team that you're on, but it would also apply to just the industry in general. So, you know, if you're, you're hanging out in a local area, uh, you can be part of that tech scene and, you know, you have friends and connections and one person goes from, you know, a person goes from the job at the company with you to another one. They're a reference to bring you along over there, et cetera. Like you can just sort of float around, um, more easily, I think, when you're, when you're working in a, a local scene like that. When you get into this distributed thing and the desire to be a remote worker, uh, I think it more than incrementally increases the need to make your name known. Uh, but that can, that can mean different things. So for me, it meant, uh, I guess probably starting with writing a blog back when that was a thing people did a lot of and, and kind of networking that way. Um, but, you know, writing books, organizing conferences, speaking at conferences, then keynoting at conferences. Um, really, you can kind of create a checklist of things that if you've done, you're going to get inbound requests for you to work on teams. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I can't imagine anytime soon I'm going to be out looking for a job. Uh, you know, even if, if I decided for some reason to, to leave the one I'm in, which I have no plans to do, um, it would be pretty easy for me to find something where I could work remotely. I'm pretty sure I would be contacted as soon as it was understood that I was free. Mm-hmm. But it's only because I spent years growing that kind of online virtual presence. Right. Uh, and the, the weird thing about it is, and this is not necessarily about being a remote team, uh, team member, but people assume that I am a great programmer in many cases. Uh, you know, they'll actually say things like that to me. Most people have not ever seen any code that I've written or mm-hmm. seen any proof that I can even write a line of code. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you look through all of the conferences I speak at, I almost never speak about anything technical. So other than some open source work I've done, which is also obviously an, uh, an important potential avenue for getting known, uh, and my Rails Recipes book, it is possible that I am just like trolling the software industry. <laughs> like I'm a saxophone player, and I decided I wanted to be known as a programmer, so I did it without ever writing any code. Uh that might actually be possible. That would be kind of a fun experiment, but I'd have to change my identity to try it. <laughs> Cause otherwise, you know, the well is tainted, but yeah, like people just assume that I'm going to be a great programmer, that I'll be very productive, etc. cetera. Uh, but there's no proof. Um, even now there's no proof. I, I don't know if you've ever seen any code I've written. I would bet that you probably haven't. I don't know if I have. You, you may have, if you look through, you know, some open source thing that I worked on, but, Right. You wouldn't even remember it, right? Uh, maybe you wouldn't even assume I'm a good programmer, so I may be, <laughs> I may be guessing that, but it, that's a funny effect that you can have on people psychologically. I guess that's called marketing. Um, right. Seth Godin says all marketers are liars, and in a way, even if you're, 
you're selling the truth about yourself, it doesn't matter because the truth is the same as the lie in terms of how you get people to believe it. Right. It's almost like, um, you know, in order to be that, that introvert, you know, that classical programming introvert, um, you know, w- working from, working from your own, you know, dark, uh, dark hole in the ground or whatever you prefer, uh, you have to be an online extrovert, extrovert. You know, you have to be able to project that presence. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's something to that that is beyond just the marketing aspect. And that is, you have to be really good at communicating in the form of text, yes, email, but probably even by voice, if you know, if not in person, at least over Skype or the phone, to be effective. Um, so finding someone who's an online extrovert gives you a clearer sense that they'll be able to fit in and make and be present remotely. Yeah. You know, one thing I've, I've, um, tried to, to advocate a bit for and get people to do more of, I'm curious what, what you think of this is, is just, uh, remote pair programming with people, with other people. Um, you know, I, I try to fit in like at least one session a, well, yeah, usually it's, it's at most one session a week of just like some, someone will, will get in touch with me and we'll work for like two hours on an open source, piece of open source code that they're interested in or that I'm interested in. And, and, and I feel like that's maybe one avenue. Um, you know, for becoming known is, you know, is just getting in touch with, with other people that you're interested in, in working with or in learning from or something like that and saying, Hey, can we, can we pair on some open source code? And, you know, like I'm going to be like, I, I think, you know, if I'm looking to hire someone, I'm going to be probably a little bit more biased towards somebody that I've spent two hours pairing with, um, you know, and discussing things. And, you know, I've seen, you know, how they think, um, and then that, that's generally like my preferred way of interviewing people anyway. So, um, you know, I don't know. What do you think of that? I think it's a good idea. Uh, remote pair programming is one of those things like taking your vitamins or stretching, <laughs> you know, I, I think is a great idea and I have not managed to actually force myself to do very often. Um, that said, I've had some great experiences doing it with a really low tech mechanism, um, Marcel Molina and I, he used to be on the Rails core team. He's now at Twitter. We worked together for some period of time, and he was in Texas, and I was in Colorado. And what we would do is either IM or Skype, just audio. Um, and back then we were using Subversion, so he wrote a little script that would watch for uh, changes in the repo, and whenever it changed, it would pop open a dip, like in TextMate. Um, so while we were talking, he could write a test and it would pop open and I would implement it. And while I was, he would be writing the next one. So we did that kind of ping pong pairing thing. Hmm. But when I put an implementation in, it would pop open the diff on his side so he could see what I had just done. Hmm. Um, so that gave us the flexibility and freedom of our full unencumbered non-remote work environment, you know, like not having to do a screen share kind of thing. Right always a little bit of lag or something yucky about that. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't literally pair programming, but it was really close to it. And I think it, it gave me the same benefits that I get. Like I was more productive. I think us together in that mode was a lot more productive than both of us going off individually and working on totally separate things. Right. Which I always believe about per, pair programming. Um, Derek Sivers, uh, 
wrote this book. He, he was the founder of CD Baby. Um, he's a musician. He wrote this book called How to Call Attention to Your Music. It's a free ebook that you can get from his website. And there's one thing that he talks about in there, which is really great. Uh, he talks a lot about networking, and he's actually writing for musicians, but it's applicable to anyone. Um, he says that you should always be thinking about how you can help someone else. Mm. And when you were talking about pairing and who you would who you would uh, be most likely to to hire, I think I would be most likely to hire someone who had gone out of their way to help me in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a great way to get to know someone. So uh, the same could be said for just contributing to someone's open source project. But, you know, maybe there's an opportunity to use pairing in that kind of way, too. Like, hmm. I know you're working on this thing. Can I pair with you? And, and hopefully it's something where you're actually uh, benefiting the person you're pairing with. Right. Or it could be like, I've got an open source project. Does anyone have a feature request and want to pair with me on it? You know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Um, I think that's really valuable networking to use that kind of icky term. <laughs> right. Uh, the way that, like, uh, the way I met Dave Thomas from the Pragmatic Bookshelf and Pragmatic Programmers, who I have gone on to do many things in my career with, and I could probably say that my career is almost entirely built on that relationship as a foundation. Um, I wrote a tutorial on DRB. Mm-hmm. I emailed him saying, I've written this tutorial about DRB and I've documented it. And I noticed you don't have the documentation on what used to be the free online version of the first edition of the pickaxe. Can I borrow your styling and then just give you this stuff to put on there? And actually, I never, never did borrow the styling nor give him the, <laughs> the stuff to put on his site. <laughs> But that started a relationship of me trying to to be helpful to the thing that you know he had been working on. Right. That's great advice. I think you're absolutely right about you know um, not looking not not looking so much to you know how can I get people's attention on me, but you know who can I help out. Uh, I think that's a great way, a great focus. Yeah, I think if you're just thinking about yourself, then you're going to make a lot of the wrong choices, and ultimately. you're just you're gonna miss opportunities, I think. Yeah, totally. And the other thing is, if you're helping other people and you fail to achieve the desired result of attention to yourself, you at least benefit by the fact that you've helped other people. Right. So, like, true, truly being selfish. Uh, to be truly selfish, you should actually be completely selfless because it feels better. Yeah. Definitely. All right. Well, I think I've I think I've kept you long enough. Um, before uh, before you go, where can people find you and your projects online? So I am chadfowler.com. Uh, I am Chad Fowler, all one word on Twitter. Uh, used to be that if you Google for Chad, I would be on the front page, but I think the country has completely edged me out to the second. <laughs> so I would appreciate it if everyone in the world would. Write chat on a web page and link to my site. <laughs> and uh, you can always go to livingsocial.com slash jobs because I am looking to grow my distributed team. All right. And, of course, the uh, your books, The Passionate Programmer, Rails Recipes, once again, great books. 
I have them and I've, I've benefit, benefited from them. Thank you. That makes me very happy. All right. Well, Chad, thank you so much for your time. Thanks. And that's our show today. I hope you've enjoyed it. To subscribe to the show, if you haven't already, or to check out more interviews and articles about remote work, go to wideteams.com. You can also find the show in the iTunes Music Store, where reviews are very welcome. I love doing this show, but getting new interviews like this one up every week is not free. I am seeking a sponsor for the show. If you're interested in supporting the show while getting your message out to the sort of people who work remotely and listen to a podcast just to get better at it, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at contact at wideteams.com. The Wide Teams podcast is distributed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. Our music is by Giles Bouquet. Until next week, this is Avdi Grimm signing off. Wild, 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 wild,